All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. Unfortunately, today, uh, due to Governor Newsom's orders, we are without an audience. And so that always makes it a little challenging on me. I'll do the best I can. We're also, I note, late to start, and we'll have to be early to finish because we are moving our church services. The next two services are out on our church patio. They're outdoor, and so that's going to take a bunch of logistics, and so I need to be over there early for that. So we'll get what we can get today, and uh, that will have to do. Well, let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, last week we went into chapter 4 of Revelation, and we're simply going to pick back up here in chapter 4. We're going to hit the high points, and then hopefully I'll be able to provide a few new details for you. Again, what we want to be doing is we want to be visualizing this uh, as, we're, as we're going along. We also want to have in mind that this is the hub of Revelation proper. All that follows flows from this throne room and from this scene. And, and so you're going to see that with the seven seals being opened. If you remember last week, we left off right at that, at that climactic point. Um, we're going to have the seven seals open. We're going to have the seven trumpets blown. We're going to have a lengthy interlude, which is the, the cosmic war and the war in heaven. And then we're going to have the final set of seven, the seven censors, the, the censor angels throwing out their, their bowls of uh, coal and fire upon the earth. And again, what we're thinking of is you can kind of visualize it. We're thinking of the throne of God. We're thinking of um, the time from Christ. Uh, ascension, basically, not to put too fine of a point, I don't care if you say incarnation, like that's not the point, the Christ event, okay, his ascension, kind of the culmination of that, to the end of the age, we're going to be doing that timeline over and over, so the seven seals, that timeline, uh, the seven trumpets, that timeline, the cosmic war, that timeline, and then the seven censors, that timeline. So it really gives us a nice uniform look and, and an easy way to comprehend and understand the framework of Revelation. That way we don't get into this linear chronology and go off track um, in the way of trying to line up uh, you know, current events and the minutia of current events with uh, Revelation as if it were some sort of uh, fortune cookie, you know, type uh, Ouija board type thing that uh, we're, we're use, we use to discern the times. That's not, that's not correct at all. As I'll point out, you know, from time to time in Revelation, sorry, I'm conflicted here. I want to keep talking for your sake. I want to drink coffee for my sake. My ego wins, I guess. <clears throat> Pardon me, with that sip of coffee, it'll be at least 2% better. So, the... Uh, yeah, we, we don't want to read Revelation that way and in this super detailed, like, okay, well, who's leading Russia right now and what is represented by Russia and all of this nonsense. But what we do want to do is keep our eye out for some of the main themes and main thrusts and realize that they were as good as fulfilled in the first century, and yet 
as God has his way, there can be layer upon layer upon layer stacked on. So we want to have in view, what are these things in our day and age? How is Satan operating in our day and age? What do the two beasts look like in our day and age? Um, who is the man of lawlessness in our day and age? Those are the types of questions we want to be asking. Fundamentally different than this sort of uh, predicting the minutia of events as if we are on some uh, strictly chronological or strictly linear timeline. So this throne, in other words, this throne room scene that we see organizes all of Revelation. It's essential. It's also beautiful and fantastic. As we noted last week, um, in the spirit, John is drawn up into heaven where he sees one who is seated on the throne. And as the details show us, as the, <laughs> as the song, the liturgical singing of the angelic host reveal to us, this is the Father. And he is described in appearance as just simply having all of these dazzling stones. We don't, we don't know how important the color is. We don't even know if the, the ancient, these ancient designations for stones match our modern designations. If they do, we're kind of picturing blood red and green colors shimmering and shining from the, the one who sits upon the throne. And then likewise, if, if color matters and if color is what uh, can, we can line those up with the modern equivalents, then there's a rainbow sphere around the one who sits upon the throne. And even that rainbow sphere takes on kind of a, a green, an emerald type color to it. As we see the throne, we see the one uh, enshrouded in the rainbow and we remember then that this is the merciful one, the one who spared Noah and seven others, saving them through water. And we will immediately upon our death or upon judgment, seeing this throne and the one who sits upon it, we will see that rainbow and immediately we'll be reminded, this is he who saves us also. Not Noah and seven others, but Christ and his sevenfold church not through the waters of the flood, but through the waters of holy baptism. That's exactly Peter's point in 1 Peter 3. Baptism now saves you. And so to simply see that, that rainbow sphere around him is to be reminded of our baptisms. And then it is it's to lose the, the sort of servile, terrified fear, but to retain and deepen that filial sonship kind of fear that we have for our Heavenly Father, the one seated upon the throne. Now, we're introduced to the 24 elders, 24 thrones around the throne. And here you can see, I mean, thrones are for ruling. So here you can see, the, even here you can see there's, a, there's sort of a stratification, a hierarchy uh, might be the way we talk about it, but a stratification where there's other thrones. There's 24 thrones. These elders, some think they're angels. Brighton and probably most others tend to think that they're representations of the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 disciples of the New. Thus you have the full people of God, the whole Israel of God, all of those who have the faith that Abraham had gathered around. Um, and they're described as the baptized, clothed in white robes, they have golden crowns on their heads. All right, and this throne is incredible. Uh, there's, there's sound involved as we're picturing this throne. There's, there's peals of lightning and loud rumblings of thunder and what is possibly the sound of many voices around. And so it's really a, 
just a, a, a mind-blowing revelation of the one who sits on the throne. Then we're told that before the throne are seven burning torches of fire, which we're told are the seven spirits of God. So we've seen this imagery before in Revelation, but you've got the one seat upon the throne, and then in front of him are these huge, you know, se the sevenfold, the seven torches of fire, which are the Holy Spirit. And then the 24 around these, and then we're introduced to the four living creatures, sometimes called cherubim, sometimes called seraphim. We spent some time going through you know, what, what this may represent angelically. I think it's safe to say no matter how you f where you fall on the particulars, this is an extremely high-ranking angelic crew. The four creatures, of course, are depicted uh, in Ezekiel as each having uh, four heads. Each one has four heads. Um, so you've got this like four of them with four heads. Here you have um, each one having one head or one face. Um, so four creatures each with one face, but no less majestic, no less mighty, less mighty or awesome. Day and night, um, day and night, uh, the four living creatures that are filled with eyes all over, all around and within. I mean, it's incredible. Eyes, uh, and I'm not suggesting this is merely symbolic, but eyes represent wisdom and knowledge. And so these beings have wisdom and knowledge um, in terms of what they see externally and what they see internally. Um, they know in a much higher, much purer way uh, than, than we fallen human beings do. All right, and then, yeah, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, day and night, which is they never cease to say, they cry out. So what we see then is that heavenly worship is profoundly liturgical. Probably, sadly, from your average Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod perspective, from your average Protestant, for sure, and maybe even from your average Roman Catholic perspective, this Worship in Revelation looks high church. That's what we'd call it. Uh, biblically, there is no designation, de designation of high church. There is church. <laughs> that is to say, there is reverence due to the one we are worshiping, an acknowledgement of the one we are worshiping. And so I spent some time last week talking about, look, as it was in the Old Testament, so it is present in heaven, so it is in the new heavens and the new earth. It's like, well, then what should it look like right now? Gee, I wonder. Um, you know, it's like one of these is not like the others, then there's a problem. So we ought to, uh, we ought to ever evaluate our own worship and our own uh, divine service, liturgical life, mass, whatever you want to call it, in light of what is revealed to us of the heavenly worship. Um, because, <laughs> and if we don't like it now, we're not going to like it in heaven. So, <laughs> so that's a problem. Um, well, we've got these four living creatures. And so the, the whole throne room of God is getting populated. Mm, I skipped over the glassy sea. There's a glassy sea, too. This is back in, uh, just to help us with our visual, this is back in, what is it, chapter, or verse 6. The glassy sea. And we even had this really cool imagery. I couldn't recall last week, and I don't recall this week, whether it comes from uh, Jewish sources or, or uh, early church sources, but... 
these four living creatures, four is of course the, the imagery of the earth. And so some have pictured these four living creatures as really set on the four corners of the earth. You don't have to do a flat earth thing in your mind here to make it work, but it doesn't hurt if you do because you're just, what you're talking about isn't necessarily what's objectively true or what's true from a telescope. What you're talking about is true from how you experience it, from how human beings experience it. So it's really moot however you view this thing in your head. Either way works visually, by the way. But you've got these four living creatures and they're, they're upholding or surrounding the earth. And the earth is literally, you know, the footstool of Jesus. How so? That glassy sea is his footstool. And that glassy sea from our vantage point is sometimes called the heavens or the firmament. I mean, it's so interesting to tie this in with the, with the narrative of the deluge uh, because it's the firmament, firmament that opens up and floods the earth. Uh, not only do all the waters come up from above, but the firmament looses from below and, um, or excuse me, the firmament <laughs> looses from above. And so to think of that as, as the sky and the, uh, you know, it's just incredible. So anyway, this, this, this glassy sea, the blue sky, and, and that's his footstool. The very top of our world is the footstool of God. So the highest part of our world is his footstool and heaven is his throne. And so he's enthroned upon the cherubim, these four living creatures. Uh, heaven and earth are, are in unity in God, um, etc. So you get this beautiful cosmic huge vision of what's going on. Now, as these uh, creatures cry out day and night, we're reminded uh, of this stunning fact that most people who conceive of heaven, uh, most Christians this day and age, conceive it as some sort of timeless uh, nether world where they've been lobotomized. They don't remember anything from their past. Maybe they don't know anyone and they're sort of floating around and maybe there's some new age Enya music playing in the background. Friends, I couldn't come up with a, a more apt description of hell if I tried. Uh, I mean, all you need are some, some turquoise and pink colored flames dancing in the background. You have, you have hell. Uh, that is not at all what heaven is like. Heaven is liturgical, filled with tremendous awe and reverence, in just incredibly breathtaking, and continuity. Um, we know who we are. We know who everyone else is. We know who God is. We see him. And also, there's a passage of time. There's day and night. And that passage of time is linked intimately with the liturgy of heaven. So first of all, the cosmos, including that part of heaven, everything created that's visible and invisible, the highest part of it, uh, heaven, is run on liturgical calendar, liturgical cycle. And so as the earth becomes liturgical, as we rather, as our eyes are open to the liturgy of the earth, the liturgy of the visible cosmos, um, we are seeing how everything not, uh, proclaims the handiwork of God. We talked about that last week, the, and, we'll, and I'll mention again when we get to the scroll, but just the event of the Word. The Word is reality, and reality is the Word. Text and reality are almost impossible to separate. So, um, yeah, so, so we'll get to that again maybe when we get to the, to the scroll. So there's the, um, 
there's a liturgy where they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But of course, as we noted, someone is missing. We have the Father, we have the Spirit, we have this whole company of uh, angelic beings all around. So um, where is, uh, well, where is the second person of the Trinity? And there's chapter 5. Then I saw the, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, so the right hand of the Father. Now, where does Jesus ascend? As we confess very plainly, to the right hand. So pay attention. This is in his right hand. Jesus ascends to the right hand. So keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the scroll. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back. Full. The scroll is full. Sealed with seven seals. Not just one seal, seven seals. The content of this scroll is not to be made known. You can follow your little biblical concordance uh, and you can find lots of references. There's a really fun theology with this scroll. And and a distinct possibility, I, I think almost a certainty, that some of the Old Testament prophets saw in one way, shape, or form this scroll and they were told various things in regard to it. Uh, But the bottom line is that it's not to be opened, it's not to be fully revealed until when? When can it be fully opened, fully revealed? Well, now is that moment. So the scroll has seven seals covered front and back, and what is on that scroll? I mean, here we'll just just let the... uh, the horse out of the barn. This is the mystery of God that is revealed. You can see this in Ephesians. You can see this in 1 Corinthians. You can see this in a number of places uh, where Paul talks about this. This is the, the revelation, the content of the scroll is the mystery of the salvation of the cosmos. Okay, that God is not merely coming to redeem Israel. He's not merely coming to fulfill promises to Abraham and his biological seed. He's not coming to just give them back the promised land and let them be an earthly power for a thousand years or for the rest of time or whatever it is they fancy. That is far too narrow, laughably narrow. What is revealed in the scroll is nothing less than the the death and resurrection of God as testified in the Old Testament and that death and resurrection of God for the death and resurrection of the cosmos so that the whole cosmos will perish and be brought back, be made new. And that includes... I mean, for crying out loud, this is not political, this is cosmic, and it's not the Jews, it's all peoples, uh, we Gentiles included. So, um, that's the content of the scroll. But alas, alas, we, we have some drama in regard to the scroll, verse 2, and I, was a, and, and, um, I saw a strong angel, we talked a bit about the strong angel, and we'll talk about him again later, but... I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. 
and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So all of these holy, mighty, sinless angels, and they can't open it. Again, why? Very briefly, because the opening of this scroll is the salvation of the world. Like, again, you can see how closely connected the scroll and reality are. By the way, you can, see, you can see this scroll also just simply as the Old Testament itself. The, the true, proper meaning and interpretation of the Old Testament is actually the scroll opened. That is, God's plan of salvation from the beginning made manifest. Uh, in this sense, as, as you look at the New Testament as simply commentary on the Old and spelling out what the Old has already taught, then the New Testament, in terms of documents, uh, are precisely the content of this scroll. And the words are reality, and the reality are words. So a very beautiful, very profound thing. I pointed you to Psalm 19 last week. You can go there again if you want a, a little deeper theology in this respect. Now, no one can open this because this is the salvation of the human race. And it also, by the way, happens to be the close of the age. Because in order to have a new heavens and a new earth, the old have to pass away. Okay, two points I want to make. Hopefully I'll remember them both. First, in order to bring the salvation of the human race, you have to have atonement made for the human race. Propitiation. So... As the scriptures say, Christ Jesus came and God laid on him the iniquity of us all. As true man, he is able to bear mankind's sins. As true God, he's able to bear everyone's sins, the sins of the whole world. The Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the whole world. And so he does that. And so he alone is worthy to open this scroll. Nobody else can do it because nobody else has made atonement. Nobody else can break the seals because in order for the seals to be broke, uh, in order for final salvation to come, um, the cross must take place. Atonement must take place. Now the second point is in order for the good news to come, the bad news has to come too. In order for the new heavens and the new earth the old have to pass away. So immediately what, we, what we're going to see is as Jesus opens those seals from our perspective, our earthly fallen perspective, bad things start happening. Bad things are revealed. But here's the truth and mystery of not only Revelation, but all of Scripture and all of preaching, so much of it that's just labeled as legalistic and fire and brimstone and dismissed by us. If you understand these things rightly, they too are good news because they are proclaiming the doom and end of all causes of offense, all things that make man fall away from God, and of all who practice anomia, lawlessness. Bad angels, bad men, people who want to do nothing but ruin and trash the world uh, physically, morally, spiritually, etc., it, this is the great taking out of the garbage. And yeah, nobody likes taking out the garbage, but once you take out the garbage, the whole house smells better. And that's precisely the point. So when these, when these uh, seals are broken, when these trumpets are blown, when these bowls of incense are, uh, are cast, um, or you know, censer bowls from the altar of incense with the hot coals cast, what you have here looks superficially like bad news. But this is the beginning of the end of all evil. 
This is the redemption and salvation of God's people. This is judgment meted out upon the wicked of the earth while the righteous are spared and saved. Okay, so when Jesus is found worthy to open these scrolls, those are the things we want to have in mind. Now, in our narrative, John is weeping and wailing because uh, no one is able to open the scroll and he wants the scroll open. If that scroll stays shut, the world stays in misery forever, indefinitely, until that scroll is open. Now, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And again, there's that word we hear over and over throughout the seven epistles, the sevenfold epistle to the church, okay, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Jesus has conquered, and so in him we conquer. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. Okay, let's pause there because this is beautiful imagery. Again, we want to be envisioning this. That's why he takes the time to tell us the details of where exactly he is. If the one seated upon the throne were looking at you um, and the lamb was looking at you and you were facing the, uh, the uh, seven-fold uh, torches, you have this really, really cool visual that takes place. Because the seven torches back in um, chapter 4, verse 5, are the Holy Spirit, okay? And look at how the lamb's eyes are described. The lamb has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So the seven lamps and behind it, the seven eyes of the lamb. And how are his eyes described? How are the Lord's eyes described? As flames of fire. In other words, what the Spirit does, the light of the Spirit, reveals Christ. And similarly, the eyes of Christ are the light of the Spirit that goes throughout all the earth, searching it. It's It's a different, it's an anthropocentric kind of existential view of vision where your vision, as Jesus says, is the lamp. You know, you close your eyes, everything goes dark. You open your eyes and it lights everything. And so vision is sort of like this spotlight that goes throughout. So it flows to Christ, from the Spirit to Christ, and then back out from Christ to the Spirit. You can see it in these different aspects. Very vision, I mean, visually though, there's just profound uh, theology here because the Spirit enlightens us to see Christ. And in Christ, we see Christ, the Lamb, in the midst of the throne. And so visually, to see the one on the throne, he cannot be seen or perceived except apart from viewing the Lamb. So again, you have this this economy, as it's commonly called, where the Holy Spirit enlightens the face of the Lamb, and the Lamb reveals unto us the one seated upon the throne. To see Jesus is to see the Father, to put it very plainly. Now, these seven horns of the Lamb, horns are power. And you see the symbolic use of, uh, the symbolic use of 
uh, numbers here. Once again, we haven't, we haven't found a number, I don't think, yet in Revelation that hasn't been symbolic. That's important to keep in mind as we get to uh, chapter 7. So these seven horns, the sevenfold horns, that's perfect power. God's power, he possesses. Um, the seven eyes, that's all-knowing. Wisdom that searches out the earth. So he possesses this. In other words, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Now, a little bit of a shock because, again, you hear this language of the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. I mean, these are like lion imagery, king imagery. And instead, what you see is a lamb, and not only a lamb, but a lamb who stands, is standing as though it had been slain. Well, as though it had been slain, of course, he had been. This is the crucified Jesus. And yet he stands. So in one image, you have the crucified and resurrected lamb. All right, and then verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. What did we say? Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. What we're witnessing here and why the lamb was missing and why the angel was crying out, who can open, and why John was weeping is precisely because the lamb was not there. The lamb was on earth. And what we're viewing here now is what the ascension looked like from a heavenly vantage point. The lamb ascends into heaven to the right hand of God takes the scroll and reveals its content, opens to us the Old Testament scriptures. Not a jot or a tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will by no means pass away. He takes this scroll from the right hand of the Father. He begins to open it, which is terror upon those who despise God. And it is a great, great rejoicing for the saints, even though it's quite traumatic and dramatic to see all of this going on. We need to realize that our redemption is drawing near. Isn't that just what Jesus says? When everything in this earth is going to hell in a handbasket, we rejoice because our redemption is drawing near. We lift up our eyes. And so that's really then the theme of Revelation. It's not to become discouraged by these negative things, but to realize they're in God's hand. They're in his control. They serve his good and gracious purposes as he works even these terrible things for the good of those who love him. And in the end, this is the drubbing of evil and the taking out of the garbage so that the new heavens and the new earth may be brought forth. Revelation, you could not have a more gospel-centered, good news book. If there's a single one in the New Testament, I don't know what it would be. Okay, so he takes the scroll. That's verse uh, 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, again, this is incredible because they're worshiping the Lamb, the one who is not only God, but the one who is man. This is the stunning part of Hebrews chapter 1, where all the angels of heaven are worshiping this man, Jesus Christ. 
Now, as they fall down, we are told that, um, so they, they're prostrating themselves, right? They're um, falling down on their face in act of reverence and worship. We read, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, more on that in a while, but incense and prayer, uh, the prayers of the saints are deeply connected throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. It's why the church in all times and places has had incense, with the exception pretty much of uh, Americans, because we're all apparently allergic to it. I wonder if we'll be allergic in heaven. So this is one of the great tragedies of our time, and probably one, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal, but probably, probably worthwhile bringing incense back into the church, even when we have our, uh, our alarmists, ha- you know, with their faux coughs and faux hacking going on, because uh, incense is so deeply connected with prayer and so deeply connected with Old Testament worship, um, <laughs> heavenly worship, New Testament worship, and uh, worship in the, um, in the new heavens and the new earth. You remember the psalm, let my prayer rise before you as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Uh, yeah, just beautiful. And that, and that language too, by the, yeah, well, that'll get me too far off on a tangent, but that's effectively what Christ is doing on the cross when it becomes dark is he's begun, he's begun the evening liturgy and his prayers are ascending to the Father as incense. But again, that's going to take me too far afield if I go into more detail. All right, so there's, as soon as he takes the scroll, there's this profound heavenly worship. This is the ascension of Jesus. He has conquered. He is worthy And it is time to open up the scroll, which is doom for evil and the birth of of the new heavens and the new earth, salvation for God's people. So they sing a new song, verse 9, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You see, I wasn't just making it up. The actual hymn, the actual heavenly hymn sung by, uh, sung by this, this crowd, this heavenly crowd, they say why he is worthy. He's worthy precisely because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God. If he didn't do this, there's no people for God. There's no opening the, the scroll. But since he was slain, since his blood has ransomed a people, the scroll may be opened for their sake. And look, it's exactly as I said earlier too. It's not just Jewish people or biological offspring of Abraham. But as they sing, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Now, in many liturgies, ours included, we have uh, this language of um, worthy is the lamb um, from our, from our uh, liturgical hymn, our glory. This is the feast. So um, we continue with that language and worship that comes to us from this, from this text. Now, 
Now, we learn a little bit of something here, um, although it is a it's already been a recurrent theme, that by the shedding of Jesus' blood, by his ransoming of a people for God, he has, from every nation, not just from the Jews, from every nation, he has made them, made us, a kingdom and priests to our God. So Christ is our high priest and we are his priests. As his kingdom, ironically, we are kings and he is king of kings. And you can think of the deep, rich imagery um, all throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, to this effect that we are, I'm thinking here, of, especially of Peter in the New Testament, of Exodus in the uh, Old Testament, that we are a kingdom and priests to our God. And then look at this. And they shall reign on the earth. So again, this is where Jesus is king of kings, and he is giving us to reign over the earth, to have dominion over the earth, which of course harkens all the way back to Genesis 1, um, where the Lord gives man dominion. He gives him reign over the earth. And of course, man loses that reign and hands it over to Satan. Thus, Satan becomes the small g god of this world. Um, So now the reign of this world The small g godship of this world is handed back to those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, don't think too abstractly about the blood of the Lamb. This is very concrete. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You know, this is the New Testament. This is the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, Moses took the blood of bulls and flecked it upon the people. And that's how they were made members, participants, recipients of this special relationship with God, where they were described as a kingdom of God and priests of God. How is it that then we are ransomed, cleansed, made into a kingdom and priests? Well, it's not Moses flicking the blood of bulls. It's Jesus giving us his blood in the chalice. Take and drink of this, all of you. This cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins so in receiving his blood we are cleansed we are made kings and priests to our God such that by his blood we will reign with him so very very correct to see referent to the Lord's Supper here and to see the concrete uh, pouring out of Jesus' blood uh, for us. All right. Then um, what we have is, uh, yeah, we shift, we shift gears just a little, but not much. We continue on basically with the uh, cosmic worship because what has happened is Jesus has conquered. He's arrived in heaven. He's taken the scroll. This is his coronation. This is his enthronement, and this is the hub and center of revelation. Jesus now reigns, and his blood has cleansed sinners who believe in him. And now from this point on, let's go. Let's bring this thing to conclusion and climax, and all of heaven is rejoicing at this. All right, that's where we're going to have to stop today. As I mentioned, I have to leave a little early to prepare for our next services. Uh, 